There's a UPS driver in Prescott Valley named Jason who has run into several people from our church along his route. Jason is a strong believer and shines his light in Jesus everywhere he goes in that big brown truck. He encountered Jay who comes to our 830 service at his house one day and they got to sharing about being brothers in Christ and now they fellowship regularly over breakfast encouraging each other in the Lord. Later on he met Frank and Wanda at their house and actually helped, came in and helped them with, with uh, physical need they had at the moment. This week, I was out walking our neighborhood with our four-year-old Luke. He was riding his little bike and we saw a UPS truck and we saw the driver get out up in front of us and the sidewalk we were walking was the one he had crossed to take the package to the house. And as we got there and he's coming back, he said, Scott Mitchell. And I said, yeah. He said, I'm Jason. Do you remember me? I said, no. <laughs> um, but tell me. And he, he, We had known each other years ago, and he started asking questions about the church, talking about Jay a little bit. And we talked for a good 15 minutes about the church, and it was encouraging. And then we went on our little loop around the neighborhood, just a circle in viewpoint. And I had never seen him there before in my life. On our little circle throughout that neighborhood, after we talked to him the first time, his truck passed us not only a second time, not only a third time, but the fourth time to the place where he, he stopped on the road where we were walking and he just started laughing and I just started laughing and he said, what is God trying to tell us? And I said, well, I think he wants us to cross paths. And he said, I think he wants me to come to the church next door. And I said, well, only you know that, but I hope so. And this morning we got a text, Jay got a text saying he is going to come visit one of these weeks soon. So God works in mysterious ways, but one of the things about that is sometimes we don't uh, understand what God is up to right away. It, it, it's got to hit us a couple times, one time, two times, three times, four times for us to wake up and say, whoa, God's working here. And how many of us know that sometimes that's even true when it comes to learning the truth of who God is? Sometimes we'll hear it once, we'll hear it twice, we'll hear it a few times, and, but it's not till it crosses our lives, sometimes many times, that we start to get it. We encounter a very interesting miracle today in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles there, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And I'm going to ask you to do something that may feel uncomfortable, but I, I hope you'll try it anyways. I'm going to ask you to enter into the shoes of this blind man in this encounter. And I'm going to ask you to do a couple things, a little crowd participation. The first thing, which may seem strange, especially since I told you to turn to the passage, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a few moments here. Just close them and imagine that you have no physical sight. You are blind. Put yourself in this man's shoes, and, and listen as I read. Keep your eyes closed. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he, he took the blind man by the hand. Can, can you feel somebody grabbing your hand? And let him out of the village. And, and when he had spit on his eyes, did you feel that? <laughs> and, and laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? Now I want you to do something Different. I want you to open your eyes, but squint them. Squint them so that everything you see is fuzzy. Don't open them all the way. 
just, just so you can look around and everything looks fuzzy. Verse 24, as a blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. In other words, his vision was, was fuzzy. You could see, but not clearly. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now open those eyes all the way. Open those eyes all the way. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. I told you this was an interesting miracle. Why do I think it's interesting? Because it's the only miracle in the New Testament where the healing happened in stages. Why do you think that is? Do you think somehow that when Jesus spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him that he that he goofed up the first time? Oops. No, that's not the Savior we've met throughout Mark. This is the Savior in Mark 7.37 who has done all things well, remember? So obviously it's intentional on Jesus' part. He didn't have to do it that way, and most times he did not. Why heal in stages? Context in Scripture, what comes before and after something is hugely important. I believe that gives us a hint at why Jesus did that. I believe he was teaching his disciples a lesson about sight, perception, but not just physical sight, spiritual perception. Now go with me on this. Watch what happens immediately following this miracle. Verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is up near Mount Hermon. It was the mouth of the River Jordan. We're told that this is a very fertile area, lots of vegetation, a beautiful place it would have been to, to hang out with the Savior. It says, On the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And how many of you have been around the block enough times to know that some of the best lessons we learn in, in our lives start when somebody asks us a good question? It gets us thinking, gets us processing. So he starts with kind of an impersonal question. Who do people say that I am? And they told him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. We've heard this before. A lot of people see something going on in Jesus, but they don't go all the way to, to realize that who he is, right? But all of a sudden, it's, a, it's about to get real personal. It's that moment in the class when the teacher calls on you. By name. He, he, he asked them, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And as you put yourselves in their shoes, they've been walking with them for some time now. I want you to wrestle through that same question too. Who do you say Jesus is? Not who do we say He is up here? Who's that person next to you say He is? Who's that guy on the podcast say He is? Who, who do you say Jesus is? Now watch this. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Matthew tells us a little bit more in his account of this. Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for... Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Is Peter seeing who Jesus is when he says he's the Christ? Yes. When he sees that he's the Messiah, the one that that Israel has been waiting for, the one promised in the Old Testament, yes, he's he's seeing. I believe when you go back to the miracle of the blind man, he's getting at this spiritual sight because you'll remember even last week when Bartholomew was up here from the Holy Land and and the disciples were failing to understand who Jesus was because of the the loaves. They they were worried because they didn't have have bread and he had already fed crowds twice. And and Jesus said to them in in Mark 18, having eyes... Do you not see? Remember, having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then verse 21, he cuts to the chase and he says, Do you not yet understand? But here, Peter, his sight is coming. Let me ask you a question. Did Peter understand the idea of Jesus being the Messiah clearly at this point? No. No, and we got biblical proof of that. Just continue reading in your Bible. Verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. He put it out there, plain as day. This is what I must go through. I must die. I must rise again. Now here's where we see Peter's fuzzy perception of who Jesus was as the Messiah. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Whoa, Lord. That's not what we've been waiting for in a Messiah. You see the Romans? (laughs) Yeah, we want somebody to get them out of here. We want somebody to set up an earthly kingdom now. Let's talk about dying. No, Lord, especially not you. No, he rebuked Jesus, but... Verse 33 says, Jesus turning and and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He knew he was the Christ, but he had a fuzzy perception of, of what that meant. And Satan was using that to tempt Jesus once more away from the cross. So Jesus said, Get behind me. Satan. One of the phrases I love in there, Jesus said that when He turned and saw His disciples. He loved His disciples and He would not allow them to be misled by this misunderstanding and He knew that in order for them to be saved, He would have to go to the cross. He would have to rise again. So Peter saw He was the Christ, but His perception was fuzzy. So they're wrestling now, the rest of the book, what kind of Messiah is this? And that's why we're going to see not just this cycle, but two more times in the next few chapters. He's going to tell them plainly what He came to do, and they're not going to get it. And we can all put ourselves in their shoes and say, wow, does it not take us many times sometimes to understand what God is doing? Okay? But another question they're wrestling with the second half of this book is not just what kind of Messiah is this, but... What does this mean for His followers? If our Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, is going to die and rise again, what does that mean for us who who follow 
in his footsteps. Verse 34, Jesus answers that. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's start with deny himself. That means no longer for the follower of Christ is myself on the throne of my life an option. Don't get me wrong, I can choose to live that way, but that's not the way God has called me to live. I am not to be on the throne of my life any longer. Christ says that throne is mine. You must deny yourself. Take up his cross and follow me. Now there's a phrase that we have watered down over time. Maybe uh, some of us husbands and fathers with, with babies with diapers have watered it down when we got another number two diaper and say, well, guess that's my cross to bear. I'll just... <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen, that is a seriously watered down <laughs> understanding of what Jesus is saying here. And the reason we water it down to little things like that is because in America, you won't walk outside this door and see someone dying on a cross, gasping for air. These people would see that regularly. They knew well what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about an instrument of death. And we know as we read Romans and other epistles in the New Testament that the believer dies to himself and lives to the Lord. One author wrote it this way and it shed light on it too. If you looked and saw someone carrying a Roman cross to the place of execution, what you were seeing was someone who previously rebelled against the authorities, now submitting to the authorities as they carry their cross. Now take that to a higher level. It, it, it comes clearly. He goes on. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Jesus was never shy about the costs of discipleship. He told folks to count the cost. In fact, I was talking with some folks in the lobby a couple weeks ago. They once heard a message titled, Reasons Not to Follow Christ. And it was just going through the costs of being a faithful disciple of Jesus. Okay, Jesus was never shy about the cost of, of being a disciple. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. We want, sometimes when we hear the calls of Christ upon our lives, to, to surrender, to follow Him, even to death if need be, even to shame among our peers if need be. Go on and on and on. We hear that call, but we want to protect our lives. We, we don't want to come to Him in faith to accept Him as our Lord and Savior. But He says, if you do that, you will lose your life eternally. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, you give it to Jesus, you'll save your life. I've heard this brought out as the picture of a seed. You can protect a seed by, by putting it in a jar on a shelf in your house, and that seed will always be that seed. But that's all it's ever going to be. If you want that seed to really reach its full potential and bring life into the world, that seed has to go into the ground and die and a plant comes out of it. The same way with Jesus. We can shield our lives and not come to Him in faith to accept Him as Savior and Lord. 
It's a way to lose life. You want life. You give it to Him. Give it to Him. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is all about wise investments. We, we think a lot about wise investments when we think about retirement and other things. This is an eternal investment he's talking about. Can you put a price on your soul? Is there anything in this world worth losing your soul over? No. And he goes on with sobering words for his disciples then and now. Rather, for those who will not come to Him in faith, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And I clarify, I believe He's speaking of those who refuse to come to Him in faith. Now, so I look at Peter's journey and the journey of the other disciples. I want to talk about four C's. One thing I think we can do is take comfort in the fact that we're not alone. We're not the only ones who are sometimes slow to get it, okay? Truth is, before Jesus, we're blinded. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does it take to lift those blinders? It takes Jesus, the Spirit of God, the illumining the Word of God in our lives to bring us, as Paul talks about in Acts 26, from darkness to light, to bring us to faith. Okay, but there's good news with Peter. He asked yourselves, he was, he was slow to get it here. Did he ever get it? <laughs> oh, you turn to Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit came and you hear him preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he rebuked Jesus for here. You go to his his gospel or his epistle, First Peter. Listen to this, two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He did get it once the Holy Spirit broke through. I pray you've come to that moment where you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's the most important decision you'll ever make. You do not want to stand before Him in eternity and have Him be ashamed of you because you were ashamed of Him. Many of us are are believers. The challenge I get is, look, does the growing of our understanding stop the moment we accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord? I hope not. (laughs) I hope not. It should not. This is the second C. There is a call to more in our lives as believers. I love that picture in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan, the representation of Jesus Christ, is running with two of the children. And in this case, it's in C.S. Lewis's representation of heaven. But as they're They're running. He keeps saying, further up, further in, further up. 
further in. And it's this picture of exploring more and more throughout all eternity. But I think that starts now in the life of the believer too. Further up in this walk with Jesus. Further in. Listen to some of the things that, that come in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 1.20 All the promises of God find their yes in Him. You say, what are these blessings? What are these promises? I say, get in here. Find them. Write them down. It's important that we know them. Why? Even foundational truths, if we want to live in the reality of them, truths like we're dead to sin and alive to righteousness, Romans 6.11, what does Paul say? He says, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness because we need to know those promises, live in faith in them. Then we'll find the strength, power, and joy for living for Jesus in this world. And sometimes I think we're like the people of Israel when they got in the promised land. Some of the tribes had already gotten their land. God had given them the promised land. Some of them were settling in. Others had not taken their portion yet that God had given them. And Joshua looks at them in Joshua 18.3. says He said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? He gave it to you. Go get it. <laughs> Go get it. Think about yesterday. We were at a Cinco de Mayo party. There were a couple of pinatas. And the kids were out there whacking with the bats. And mo most of the kids were in a long line, which if you're at the end, it puts you pretty far from the pinata. But our 15-year-old Jaden's done this drill a few times. He doesn't get in the bat line. He just waits over here about two feet away from the pinata. So when that puppy breaks open, he can jump on all the bounty that comes out. Now all the kids did. That pinata had been purchased. The bounty was theirs for the taking. But in order to enjoy it, they had to jump in there and seize on to it. Are we doing that with the promises of God? Philippians 3.7 Think about the Apostle Paul. Would you say he was a spiritual man that loved Jesus and was committed to his mission? Yeah, that's not a trick question. Listen to what even he said. Okay, Philippians 3, 7, he said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Fast forward to verse 10. Here's what he was after. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now here's where it gets shocking. This is the Apostle Paul. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And listen, I'm, I'm not a betting man, but I'd probably be willing to make an exception in this case. If the Apostle Paul says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, I'm willing to take a bet that we in here have not yet either. 
And we need to keep on pressing on toward the goal, the prize. Okay, don't, don't settle. Don't settle. Now you say, you think about these promises, these blessings. What's that look like going after them? It's not going after this one and this here and this one here and this one here. Apart from Christ, they, they all come in Christ. It's by clinging to Christ in our relationship with Him through faith that, that we enjoy and, and walk in these blessings. Listen to what he prayed for the church in Ephesus. Ephesus Ephesians 3.18 He was praying that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, if I were to ask a question, how many of you want to be filled with all the fullness of God? Right? Yeah, they're all going to go up, right? Well, what's right before that? What does Paul link that to? That we comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's, it's attached to knowing the love of Christ. Now, that last phrase, we're at our prayer meeting Wednesday talking about this and praying through it. And Dave in the group said, that's an interesting phrase. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? It says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I thought about it like this. Imagine you're walking your property. Maybe some of you got three or four acres and you're going around the property and you find a hole and it's large enough for you to go down with a rope and before you go down, you, you shine a, a flashlight in there and you, you see something glimmering, something shining, and, and you shine it a little closer and you realize it's a diamond. And as you shine that flashlight around, you see diamonds as, as far as you can see down, down that hole. And, and you grab your wife or your friend and say, hey, here's a rope, lower me down in there. I want to check this out. and Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. I, I can't reach the bottom, pull me out. Now, now what's the logical thing to do? If you have that in your yard, is to say, well, I couldn't reach the bottom, so I ain't going to mess with that anymore. <laughs> Heck no! You're going to say, get that rope back out, and I'm going down as far as I can and getting as many of these diamonds out of here as I can, right? Listen, we may never, we'll never, maybe in heaven, this side, we will never fully understand the love of Christ. But I want to understand it as much as I can. I want to meditate on realities like Romans 5.8. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's as we realize the love of God in Christ that, that, that our love grows and we're filled with all the, the fullness of God. So keep on keeping on. Cling to Jesus. Last but not least, there's this important matter of consecration. When Jesus talks about denying ourselves and picking up our cross, that's what He's talking about. You know what consecration is? It is dedicating something or someone for sacred purposes. It is taking our lives, offering them, as Paul says, as living sacrifices to God in, in view of all that, that He's done for us no matter what it means. I'm not going to be that one that's ashamed of Jesus. I'm going to be bold for Him in the Spirit. I'm going to talk about Him as I have opportunity. I'm going to live in ways that this world despises, 
Because my Lord is said to. Because I will not be ashamed of Him. And often we formulate this in very specific ways. But this can happen a lot of ways. I had lunch with a guy from church this week. I won't say what company he works at because I don't want to get anybody in trouble. He said he was encouraged because another believer came to work with him. And as they got to talking, they were talking about their faith. And this other believer, even though he might not be supposed to, and he might end up taking some heat for it, doing it at this organization, he felt led to every morning on a whiteboard where they meet, write one verse from the Psalms, just to write it on there. And the cool thing that came from that, uh, the guy I was meeting with said, that there was a guy that's not even supposed to be in that meeting room one day, came up the stairs and looked like he was looking for something. And the guy from our church said, you looking for something? And he said, yeah, I just wanted to see what the verse was today. <laughs> and that just reminded me, look, there, there are so many people out there looking for someone, something to hold on to. Help us be bold enough to put it out there. Whatever way God is calling us to do that, to consecrate ourselves. Let me ask the question, what is going to lead us to surrender our lives to Jesus? Even at the risk of scorn and shame from friends, even at the risk of losing a job, even at the risk of death. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. If that's all you think this is, don't even bother trying to consecrate yourselves to it because you won't. You know who we'll consecrate our lives to? Who we will let go of this world for? Be willing to die for? Someone who let go of heaven and came to a cross to, to pursue us. To die for our sin. And die for our shame. Isaiah 53.5 Would you meditate on this as we prepare for communion? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. See, Peter, who didn't get it in our passage in Mark, he eventually got it. And he gave up his own life in honor of the Savior who died for him. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them. As we prepare for communion, I want to ask you to process through a few questions. Aaron and the team are going to come up here. I want to ask you, where are you at in that journey? Has the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to who Jesus is yet? Have you turned to Him Accepting His death on the cross for your sins and His resurrection for your victory in life. We've been praying that God would open the eyes of more hearts to, to bring them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That could be you this morning. Don't hesitate. If He's drawing you, come. Come to Jesus just as you are. Maybe... We're Christians and, and maybe kind of forgotten that, hey, this isn't just waiting for heaven. We're, we're looking forward to that day. Yeah, we're, now we see in a glass dimly, but someday we're going to see face to face. But in the meantime, we can press on.
We can grow. We can embrace those promises and, and live as though they're true because they are. Maybe when we talk about consecration, that's where God's tugging us. He's calling me to let go of something, to go somewhere, to do something, but I'm scared. Father, give us strength in the Spirit to follow the footsteps of our Lord. Wherever You lead us, we know there is resurrection and glory on the other side of whatever suffering this world throws our way. Lord, as we prepare for communion, I thank You for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And we proclaim boldly that He's worth far and above more, more than anything in this world, anything this world has to offer. May we believe in Him, trust Him, not only as Savior, but as Lord, and consecrate our lives for His glory.